Welcome to The Light Pot, brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. I'm your host, Sam Corbel, and today we welcome John Pendorf to the podcast studio. John's a senior associate and a sustainability leader at Perkins & Will, and he is specifically based out of the Washington, D.C. area. With 10 years of experience at Perkins & Well and 22 years in the industry, John also recently joined us as part of our first documentary at Lade, that's a Lade original, about sustainability and how it's on the rise in the lighting industry and is something that's also been around in construction for a very long time. John brings that perspective to us, and it's not just lighting that this matters in, and frankly, it's not just lighting that probably needs to get on the bandwagon and catch up. There's a lot going on when it comes to sustainability. There's a lot going on in terms of why this matters, how to do it, and how to make this all happen. John, welcome to the podcast. It's good to see you. Thanks, Sam. Happy to be here. We're super excited to dive in and and discuss a little bit more at that high level of what's going on in the world of sustainable design, sustainable construction. Before we do that, though, do me a favor. Tell everybody. Who's John? And how did you get your start in this industry? I am an architect by education and practice, and I manage projects currently that are largely commercial interiors and higher education. And then I internally consult on our projects um, in other market sectors when it comes to sustainability. I've been interested in sustainability since I was a child. I don't know that I knew that that was what it was called back then. I just felt like I was being an environmentalist. And from a very young age, my parents would take us to the Bronx Zoo when I was a child, uh, very often growing up in New York, just outside of New York City. Uh, We were all animal lovers. And at some point, probably when I was 11, 12, 13, I stopped looking just at the animals and started looking at how they were blending the built environment with natural habitats and with nature, all in this vein of conservation and and protection of the environment and, and care for these animals. And I started getting really interested in playing a part in that. So I started reading more, getting more involved in sustainable organizations and topics. I uh, went to architecture school and realized that the architecture profession could actually have a profound impact on both the built environment and the natural environment. And did my thesis project focused on sustainability and the rest is kind of history. As they say it, the rest is history. It's interesting that you mentioned you were into this before you knew what it was called. We still don't know what it's called. I mean, sustainability is a word, it has a definition, but at the end of the day, sustainability isn't a checkbox. There's so much that goes into it. And for us to just give all of that a word, that does it a disservice. But it's a good place to start. So where do we start? Talk to me just a little bit about where's this industry today in terms of this wide, broad focus on the environment, on the impact the built environment has on humans and what we're putting in it. I think to your point, Sustainability is the wrong word. When I think of a visual image of sustainability, I think of somebody doing the dog paddle in a pool and not moving. And what we who are very passionate about this really want to do is to push the industry forward, to be ahead of the concerns before they become true concerns. The industry, the construction and design industry as a whole has come a long way since I started in this profession. Certainly the 
drive for increasing technology as a solution for some of these problems and some of these challenges, as well as just the awareness that has been built within um, the design professions. Um, architecture in particular has taken a very strong stance on combating climate change through our professional organizations and continuing education, but there's still a long way to go. Some segments of the industry certainly have embraced high performance design, if we don't want to call it sustainability, a lot more vividly than others. You know, I, I can talk about my personal convictions probably all day. I will say even our firm realized that sustainable design was the wrong term. And so a few years ago, we rebranded it internally as living design. It includes what we would traditionally look at as sustainability, energy and water and material health. But we also start to fold in things like equity and well-being and regeneration. How do we use these lenses? If we have five different lenses or six different lenses, how do we overlay them so that we get the right solution in the right focus that gives us the most co-benefits possible? That's really what we want to do in what we're calling sustainability right now, is finding solutions to complex problems that actually provide us multiple benefits or multiple solutions at the same time. Multiple solutions and multiple benefits to complex problems. That's what we're going to name this podcast. <laughs> it's not, a mouthful. Right? Not, not sustainability and what, why it matters. Because the reality is you want to see something move forward. Why do we want to see it move forward? Because it matters. Because the time is now. Because we know that on this earth we've created ton of carbon emissions and that has been detrimental to our environment. We see it with the severity of the weather. We see it with the rising oceans, with the melting ice caps and all these other things. This is not a political podcast to talk about whether that's right or wrong, proven or not. We're all in agreement that it's real. And we're not saying that because we're saying it, we're saying it because we believe it. This industry has so much opportunity broadly across the board from how we run our own businesses and practices to how we choose to design with what we design with to how it's procured, to how it's shipped, to how it's installed, to how it's maintained, to then how it's broken down, deconstructed, and either recycled or literally repurposed. It's the total life cycle of a building mm -hmm. from beginning to end because yes, every built unless you're in Manhattan, <laughs> every building has an end. <laughs> <laughs> When you as a sustainability leader at Perkins & Will look broadly across the entire construction industry and all the trades, where do you see this movement that you're passionate about not only being activated, but creating that change? I think there's a lot of forward movement and forward thinking within the design professions themselves before buildings are even constructed. We've come a long way in our ability to use software to analyze our design solutions because we have now lots of benchmarking data that we can compare against and we can model against. So I think the design industry has really embraced the fact that we're not just designing beautiful spaces that have to function for program. We're not just designing beautiful spaces that have to comply with code but we're designing beautiful spaces that also can perform beautifully. So I think there's a lot of forward movement, but also a lot of potential in just that early phase energy modeling, more intensive site documentation and understanding of solar orientations. 
and a lot more thought going into the specification of materials that we're putting into our buildings. Sort of on the other end of the spectrum, there are some segments of product manufacturing that have really embraced their role in cl- combating climate change and, and understanding what the built environment can do in a positive way as opposed to being a negative impact. I think the carpet industry, for example, has really embraced the fact that years ago, decades ago, they were using a lot of virgin material. There was a lot of potential pollution, um, and it was ex- it's extremely energy and water intensive to make carpet. A lot of carpet manufacturers have taken a hard look at their processes and how to really reform those. And, and maybe they're not perfect yet, but they are continually making incremental changes. And I think there's also, across the board, there's a little bit more opportunity and an interest in embracing new technologies as construction systems as well. And they're not always new technologies. It's what's sort of like what's old is new again. It's looking at a building and saying through its orientation and its cardinal directions and its siting, how can we approach a project with passive solutions first, whether it's ventilation or shading or daylighting? How do we reduce the energy footprint just with smart design before we move forward. And then when we do design, can we use these new technologies and new softwares to evaluate the different structural systems that are going into the building? What's the least embodied carbon potential among a steel structure, a concrete structure, or a mass timber structure? And we're seeing a lot more interest in mass timber across the country where it used to be very segmented to where timber was a major industry because of its lower carbon footprint and the fact that exposed wood is actually quite beautiful. I think we're seeing a lot more interest in doing that, not just because it's the right thing, because it is beautiful and it can perform beautifully. And at one point in time, that exposed timber that was beautiful was not mainstream, wasn't easy to get, nobody really knew how to design with it, but someone took a chance on it. You mentioned carpet as well as a material specifically that is manufactured to be put into a space. But I wanna go all the way back to that design notion of, well, if this is something that matters to humans, why don't we just use our human logic and our own personal experiences in life to think about what kind of environment we want to sit around in. You and I are sitting in a podcast studio right now. There are no windows in here. There are, I just counted, there's eight lights on, excuse me, 12 lights on. I forgot the cool lights on the floor. Why is this room the way it is? Because it's in an existing building. If you were to design a room like this today, obviously you would say, well, daylight's the best kind of light for humans to feel comfortable underneath. And we try to like mimic from all these electric light perspectives this. Lighting has so much grown in the world of architectural lighting from the amount of product available to put electric light in the space to the way it's delivered, to the form factors that are used. The evolution of LED technology in the last 15 years have created a tremendous amount of different ways and options and resources. In this industry, the lighting industry is so proud of that. And we are so proud of designing with electric light. There's a woman named Nancy Clanton And she loves daylight and believes daylight's the best light. And if you don't design with daylight, what's the point of designing with electric light? I should probably say I paraphrase that. That's not her exact MO, but she cares very, very much about daylight. To your point, we can do so much with our own minds before we even start to select what we're putting in a space. Talk to me a little bit more about how you have seen just your core value as a designer, and this is something you care about, be able to influence and impact that both with your colleagues and your peers, but also your clients as well. 
one of the best ways to advocate for high performance design, sustainable design, is to talk about it. And the more that you can educate yourself, your peers, and your clients, generally the more accepting they are to take risks about sustainable solutions, something that they haven't thought of in the past, something that might look different than what they have right now. But I can also say that communicating the story about a design solution can be just as impactful as finding that right design solution because it provides something that people can grasp onto. And I'll give you an example. I have a client that I've been working with for about eight years now all across the country. I love working with them. They're really engaging. They're generally fun to work with. They don't come to us with specific sustainable goals on each project, but they're always open to them. And we used, not to go back to carpet, we'll get to lighting in a second, but we used a carpet in one of their projects that was made of 100% recycled fishing net. And we told them that as we were showing them the samples of it before it was installed. We finished the project, they moved in, and I'm listening to my client contact give her colleagues a tour of the space. And the first thing she said when they walked into the space was, this carpet is made of 100% recycled fishing lines and fishing nets that were harvested from the ocean. Like, she got it. Not only did she get it, now she's advocating for it. That's rewarding to me. That means that I've done my job. And sometimes it's about telling the story in a way that's meaningful to another person and using the right vocabulary. A lot of it comes down to communication. And I feel like I've spent a lot of my career trying to figure out how to communicate my sustainable values and even Perkins and Will's core values in ways that our clients can understand them and embrace them if they're not coming to us with the exact same goal at the beginning. We find a place to meet in the middle and it's a successful solution. Getting people to understand a, a common goal is, it's like marketing 101, it's the opportunity for a sale, it's the opportunity to create a relationship with a specific individual. It's the chance to root for your favorite sports team. It's like, it's that commonality of like, why do you care? And when it comes to high performance design, when it comes to putting things in a building that have an intent to add value, not only to the people that use it, but have a minimal environmental impact in a negative sense, having people just be proud of it is kind of the start of it all. When that client walked by and talked about the recycled carpet, it was a huge moment for you for an obvious reason. You're seeing what you're caring about being shared and recognized. I don't know a single designer that I've ever talked to in my life, seriously, who hasn't said one of the most fulfilling things they do is when they walk into a project when it's finished and they see somebody appreciate all the painstaking work they do and it gets vocalized, makes them feel good. Design is time intensive. It's a grind sometimes. And all too often, people don't recognize how much goes into making the decision that you make, let alone advocating for it, procuring it, making sure that it costs the right amount of money yeah. doing everything else. I mean, it's just insane what goes into the design process. But sustainability or something like that that matters fundamentally can get people excited. They weren't excited about what color that carpet was or how squishy it was. They were excited about what it was made out of. That's powerful. In the world of lighting, we love our electric lights. We love designing with it. We're super, super proud of putting all that together. Daylight is another component of it. But lighting is often portrayed in, in the field of lighting design as something that brings a lot of conversation to the table, actually. 
because in order to select the right lighting, we need to know what are all the finishes in the space and how do you want it to feel and what is the mood and environment and where do people need to go and what do they need to see or what do you want to keep them away from or what are you trying to convey? Like what the heck is going on in this environment? Without light, you can't see anything. But at the end of the day, you can choose how you do that and what you do with it. I think lighting designers and lighting manufacturers alike are always advocating for use this light to do that thing. And it's always about seeing something or putting something or creating some effect or mood or something like that. It's not about let's use lighting to advocate for the story behind why whomever lives in that building owns that building and operates that building, cares about why it looks that way. What can our industry, the lighting industry, start to do to follow suit from carpet or listen and learn and approach our strategic design alignment to let sustainability or high-performance design become a focus so that what we're doing is almost second nature? I think there's so many ways we could answer that question. And, you know, you mentioned earlier how the change towards or the, the trend towards LEDs, which have now become industry standard, have really made a considerable dent in energy use when it comes to lighting that it, that should be recognized and it should be commended. The, the challenge is that it has essentially plateaued in some ways. And, you know, we've got very sophisticated control systems now that can balance between electric lighting and daylighting and give us the right light levels at the right times of, of day, let alone for the right types of, of uses in a, in a room. But the energy efficiency is only a part of the equation. And I think where I see the lighting industry have the most potential is there's a lot more potential for looking at the materials that go into the lights themselves. There are a lot of very basic materials that are known toxins, for example, that they have been linked through significant scientific study to cause significant human health challenges, whether that be increasing asthma, potential carcinogens, potential um, for birth defects during pregnancy. And there's a lot of documentation out there that links materials like that. Trying to eliminate those materials from lighting products, which we have to admit too, a light fixture in and of itself is not one thing. It's a combination of many things that are coming together. There's a lot of different materials in a light fixture. Where it comes from is another question. Parts from one fixture could be sourced from multiple countries, which, you know, when we talk about embodied carbon and we think about the transportation that it takes to get the diodes from one country to another country or the wiring coming from another location, it's very complicated. It's not an easy solution to just say, well, we're going to map out the life cycle of this product because there's so much that goes into it. But that's the level of transparency we're going to need to see moving forward because every decision that a designer makes for a product or a system that goes into the space matters. It matters to the human health of the occupants. It matters to the performance of the building and the people who are responsible for paying those utility bills. It matters to the person who has to replace it at the end of its useful life. And where does it go at that point? It matters. Every decision that designers make matters, architects, lighting designers. So giving us the information that we need to make those informed decisions is super critical right now. When you talk about the decisions that need to be made, there's a couple ways to look at how you're going to execute on those decisions and what's driving them. I want to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll dive into that. We'll talk about what's driving all this, what matters. Is it a checkbox? Is it a lifestyle? Or is it something 
that we just need to embrace, understand, and shift the way that decisions are made. Sound good? Sounds great. Hey, it's Sam. Real quick, the Light Pod is brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. They bring you things like this podcast and short, fun, informative videos to not only learn, but celebrate lighting. Check them out at lytei.com. And welcome back. Over the break, John and I were chatting a little bit more about what it means to truly drive that sustainable high performance initiatives across all the trades in construction in terms of evaluating it as a designer, evaluating it as a vendor, evaluating it as a start to finish total building life cycle and making those decisions because they're important, they matter, and they create what needs to be created. Not a compliance checklist, right? Not a plaque on the wall. Sure, you'll get all those things, but there's so much more to it. And things like lead and well have been established to shine a light on environmental impact, shine a light on building wellness and humans in them. A step further, and we'll get to it in a second, are all the labels and the declarations that are being made around products. But first, let's just talk a little bit more about the intent and how you drive that forward without necessarily worrying about complying with some form of a certification. As you said, I think the US Green Building Council and other similar organizations have done a great job making the market aware of what needs to happen and the change that needs to happen. And LEED has evolved significantly in the past two decades from when it was first released to always be pushing the market a little bit ahead of where the market is right now, because we can't be truly sustainable. We can't be standing still, treading water, whatever you want to call it. We have to be more forward thinking. But it is a checklist. And in a lot of ways, when it comes to true high performance design, in a lot of ways, it could be seen as a bare minimum. I think taking a more systems thinking approach, where you look across an entire project for opportunities that have co-benefits, is a healthier and frankly, more sustainable way of finding design solutions to complex problems. When I work with a new client, especially one who comes to us with some sort of lead project goal, I will typically conduct the lead workshop with everybody together around the table for the first time where we don't talk about the specific credits, we talk about the ideas. We talk about sustainable site. We talk about energy, water, indoor air quality. And we always talk about the weird catch-all at the end of innovation. Where can we truly drive innovation on this project? And then when we have that conversation and everybody, all the stakeholders at the table can tell us what vantage point they're coming from and what they can bring to this conversation, we can fill out that checklist pretty easily. But we've actually created some really robust project goals that can then live through the design phases and construction and into operations. And it's less about how can we do less bad? That's what the checklist is trying to prevent. It's preventing us from doing more bad, but let's spin that to how can we do more good? And how can we do good that meets the goals of everybody who's around the table? Because the owner obviously has project goals, the client has project goals, but we as the design firm come with project goals too. And I'm sure everybody comes with their goals in mind. Let's walk through that goal set real quick. An owner has a goal. It's to build something. Their secondary goal is to operate it, likely for profit, whether it's putting employees in the space to do work or bringing people into it to create an experience. You as a design firm then take those very measurable goals and have to create 
a set of measurable design goals around how it's going to fulfill those goals to then pass along to manufacturers who have to also have goals in terms of how they make things to fit in to your goals, to fit into the design goals, to fit into the owner goals. Oh my gosh, there's so many goals. And then what we haven't even talked about in the last, I'm looking at the ticker, one minute and 19 seconds is the freaking people that are going to walk in these buildings that have absolutely no clue what anyone's goals are. Why don't we just start there? How does high performance design and the notion of sustainable design start to cater to the people that matter most, which are the people that don't actually have any goals on this project? I think the people who are occupying the spaces do have goals. They may not be enumerated during the design phase, but I think they're often publicly understood or stated if they're not specifically mandated by the owner. And we have some, we work with owners who are designing speculative spaces where you truly don't know who that end user is going to be. And we work with owners like in higher education where they know exactly who's going to be in that building. Maybe not the specific person, but they know the profile of those people. And they also know how long of a life that building has to provide for them. So here's where big data comes in really handy. And I think a lot of designers are starting to look more at how we can harvest more information about populations that may interact with our building both the way that they might use the building, but also looking at what are the trends, for example, in human health in a specific space, in a specific geography or climate zone, where the building could have a positive impact on the occupant's actual physical health. Again, it's in that same vein of wanting to do more good, not just doing less bad. So we think about how do we select materials, finishes, building systems, that can positively contribute to the indoor environmental quality. And to get to that, we need third-party certification of materials, building systems, and finishes to say that it is free of certain toxins or that we do know where the product is coming from or that it, it won't off-gas. And we've been, asking, we've been talking about some of these things for years. We just haven't been able to always pinpoint how all of these things go together. And I think in the past decade or so, there's been a lot of work to correlate how healthy our indoor spaces have really positive impacts on their occupants, whether that's reduced absenteeism or mental acuity or just being more productive in spaces, being more alert in spaces when you're in spaces that are healthier. And we now have a better sense of how the indoor environment can contribute to all of those positive factors. So we are thinking about those end users goals, even if we don't know them personally, or they haven't had the opportunity to, to volunteer them during the design phase, we have some general ideas of what would matter most to those folks, as well as overlaying what are the specific concerns in that geography or in that locale. If you've got them all in mind at the end of the day, let's go back to these things that have been created as criteria and checkboxes that also claim to have them all in mind. It's a starting point, but it is not the solution. It's a way to prevent us from doing things we really just shouldn't do. Can we get to a point where people are going to say, I'm not even going to walk in a building or work in a building that doesn't have that plaque at a minimum? as opposed to being proud that they get to walk into one. And it becomes the new baseline for which we go past. I think the general public over the past two decades has gotten more attuned to what it means to be in a high-performing building. They may not be able to always see it through the materials, 
but they understand at least the philosophy behind it. And they can sometimes literally smell it or hear it because products aren't off-gassing or you're not hearing the thundering startup of a mechanical system. Boom. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like that jarring where everything shakes for a few minutes. Yeah. But I, I, I do think there is a level of pride at having that plaque yeah. for, the, for the owner, for the end user, for the operator. And I think it's an outward sign to the bigger community that even if they met minimum standards, minimum thresholds, that there was effort put towards doing so. The checklists are a starting point. The certifications are a starting point. And, and no one seems to cover everything because as I said, LEED was developed as a market transformation tool. It's used as a benchmarking standard now, but it's still not covering bigger topics like climate resilience, like equity, like embodied carbon. It's starting to touch those and there's pilot credits addressing those, but they're not actively folded in on every project just yet. And doing an assessment at the beginning of a project where you can map out all the goals and the potential needs of the project, some of those might actually come to the forefront. Maybe you're designing a project in an area that needs more community engagement, that needs something that the project can provide in that level of equity and social justice. Or maybe you're designing in a space that is a potential flood zone. So you have to sort of rethink about what that first floor might look like. And maybe you're raising the elevation a few feet to get out of the floodplain. And what does that do to accessing the space, you know, in terms of being universally accessible to someone who might be differently abled? So sometimes it's about understanding the full vision of what are the risks, what are the needs, and what are these goals, and putting them all together. At the end of the day, if you start at a more holistic approach, you'll probably still end up with that plaque on the wall. The owner will come out with a richer solution and a better story to tell. Let's take the plaque on the wall a step further and put the plaque on paper. It's called a label. It's called a declare label. It's called an EPD, it's called an HPD. Talk to me about where these are in the industry today, where they're proficiently used, where they're widely adopted, and where they're not and why they need to be everywhere. So it's in that vein of having all the information at your fingertips. And this is where, as I said earlier, where every decision matters in design. These are giving architects, interior designers, lighting designers, whoever, all of the information that they need to make the most informed decision possible. I think to us as the design profession, if we are the specifiers and the consumers, if you will, of, of the marketing from manufacturers, it's that same outward sign to us that the manufacturer cares, that they that they give a damn about their product and what their product represents in society. But it also then allows us to say, we can stand behind that product because it has a lower global warming potential, or it doesn't contain a known toxin that we don't want to be in the indoor environment. Where it is right now in the industry is really all over the map. Um, we've got lots of manufacturers who are fully embracing the need for transparency. We as designers understand that it takes time to create this documentation and, and money um, so it is not a small feat, and I don't want to make it sound like it's you know a, just a flip of a switch somewhere and it spits out a, a label. But it's valuable information in a, in a marketing vein for the manufacturer, but then also it's something that we know we can stand behind. We often, in our firm, in our practice, we often operate on the precautionary principle. If there's a risk, we leave it out. The documentation that we have through EPDs environmental product declarations, health product declarations, the declare label, the just label, lots of other cradle to cradle, 
Um, there's lots of options, which is great for manufacturers. That gives us peace of mind that we can feel like we can stand behind the material or the product, the light fixture, whatever it might be, as something that will positively contribute to the indoor environment. And why is it important to use third-party verification to do all this as opposed to just saying, no, 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 we did it all, trust us? I think it relieves the manufacturers, quite honestly, of the burden of proof. It also creates a level playing field. If everybody is going through, and let's just take cradle-to-cradle certification as an example, if the process is the same for all LED strip fixtures or the process is the same for all ceiling tiles, then we know what is being measured against, what's being reported out, and we can then compare document to document to make the most informed decision. That's really what we're getting at is being able to say we can stand behind this product or if we're writing a specification that requires us to give three options, which is often the case in projects that are maybe federally funded, for example, that we can give them those three options and they actually are not just three of the same thing, that they all contribute positively to the indoor environment in the same way. So that third party is telling us that we can do an apples to apples as opposed to apples to bananas or pineapples. Apples to bananas to pineapples to oranges. Exactly. Back to mangoes. And then don't forget our good friends, the figs. No, I'm just kidding. You said something earlier that I thought was super interesting. A label is not only a piece of marketing material, but it is a direct way to communicate and provide you with literally what you need. I don't know how much marketing out there directly translates into what someone needs. It seems like a slam dunk to get that done in your business. Now, that takes time, effort, money, somebody to understand it. You may have to hire a third-party consultant, and then you may get a bunch of answers you're not looking for on top of it. I also, like, you know, we always make the analogy back to nutrition labels and how easy it is to read them. Once you've done it a couple times, you understand the basic concepts. You may not fully understand that a calorie is actually a unit of energy and not a unit of Rice Krispie Treat, but it's something that people can actually grasp. And one of the reasons we can grasp it is that they all generally look the same. So if your doctor tells you you have to cut cholesterol, you can go down the cereal aisle and look at the relative cholesterol levels. We're doing the same thing for products and materials. Which has the look the lower global warming potential? Which one has the greatest impact on energy intensity? Like that's what we're going for is a way so that we don't have to, the other, the other risk with manufacturers all doing it themselves and just saying disclosing whatever is that you're asking the design community then to learn how to read 7,000 different formats of material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no one has time to do that. No. There's a lot we've discussed here. There's a lot that I think opens people's eyes to understanding not only why this can be an impactful measure to not only be a part of, but how to do that. When you look at your career as a sustainability leader at Perkins & Will, your 22 years of experience in the field of architecture, where do you see this making the most impact today? And where do you see or hope it will make the most impact in the future? I think today, a lot of it has to do with awareness. The more people are talking about how the built environment impacts the global environment, the more that we can connect human health to planetary health. We see our buildings not just as standalone things, but as part of a greater system that people will understand that all of their actions and all of their decisions matter. 
and they matter for the present, but they are going to matter for the future in 20 years. There's been a lot of recent uh, climate science data that's come out. The projections, if we surpass 1.5 degrees Celsius, mean a lot of the ways we live right now will be altered in the future. And it's not just, oh, the deserts are going to get hotter or the polar ice caps are going to melt. It's that we can't enjoy the outside as much because they're predicting as many as 40 additional days during allergy season in the spring. They're predicting shorter growing seasons in some locations because of the lack of rainfall. They're predicting longer heat waves, which means potential bad air quality, which means children and people with respiratory problems can't be outside. So in 20 years, if we don't continue to raise awareness right now, we don't make those informed decisions, it's going to alter life as we all know it. It's not just something that's going to impact someone else somewhere else, not just going to impact the people who no longer have waterfront property or the new people who have waterfront property 150 feet inland. It's going to impact all of us. And so all of what we're doing right now, what I do right now, what I get up in the morning is to raise that awareness so that the next generation has a better fighting shot at flattening the curve in terms of global warming. It all comes back to how we're changing the natural environment with what we do in the built environment. The built environment is something that every single human being uh, in modern society really does appreciate. Everybody likes a climate-controlled building. Everybody likes to be able to control the climate in their building. Most people that drive an automobile today have a climate system in it, and a lot of them are automated because it was like one of the first bougie factors that car manufacturers tossed in there as an added benefit. But now it's like people don't even think about it. The question is, how big's my screen? Can I touch it? And does the car drive itself? And there's all this connected technology out there that has big hopes and dreams of being Big Brother and watching us and controlling everything in the space for us and everything else when it comes to climate and usability and everything else. But at the end of the day, I think my question to think about for you, for me, and for everyone listening to this is, do we need all that crap? Or do we just need buildings that are built around being sustainable, that have our wellness, that have a positive impact on people and the least harmful impact on the environment possible. And that would suffice. There's a lot to talk about. And this conversation is not only inspiring to me, but it's impactful. It's thought provoking and it's one that will not change, but it will continue. If people want to get in touch with you, if they want to chat more about this, or if they want to have a presentation from John from the Perkins and Will team, because I think everybody should have one at this point. You're full of knowledge, inspiration, and good ideas. How can they get in touch with you? Um, they can get in touch with me through email, which would probably be the best way. It's john, J-O-N, dot Pendorf, P-E-N-N-D-O-R-F, at perkinswill.com. And I would also highly recommend they check out the Perkins and Will website specifically our commitment to living design and all of the cool technology that we're developing so that we can have all those cool customizations and bells and whistles and still have a sustainable future. John, thank you so much for joining us. Good luck on your journey to continue to advocate for this. Something tells me I'll be talking to you again soon. <laughs> Thanks for having me again. It's been fun. You're welcome. Take care. See you. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Light Pod. 
If you enjoyed it, do me a favor and click that like, follow, or subscribe button. That's the best way to never miss another episode where we talk to people about all things lighting who have inspirational and thought-provoking conversations to share. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.